Volume Two, Chapter Twelve of *The Smuggler* by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. The house of Mister Zachary Croyland was not so large or ostentatious in appearance as that of his brother, yet nevertheless it was a very roomy and comfortable house. And as he was naturally a man of fine taste, though somewhat singular in his likings and dislikings, as well as in matters of art as in his friendships and vehement in favour of particular schools, and in abhorrence of others, his dwelling was fitted up with all that could refresh the eye or improve the mind. A very extensive and well-chosen library covered the walls of one room, in which were also several choice pieces of sculpture, and his drawing-room was ornamented with a valuable collection of small pictures, into which not one single Dutch piece was admitted. He was accustomed to say, when any connoisseur objected to the total exclusion of a very fine school, "'Don't mention it, don't mention it. I hate it in all its branches and all its styles. I have pictures for my own satisfaction, not because they are worth a thousand pounds apiece. I hate to see men represented as like beasts as possible, or to refresh my eyes with swamps and canals, or in the climate of England, which is dull enough of all conscience, to exhilarate myself with the view of a frozen pond and fields, as flat as a plate, covered with snow, while half a dozen boors, in red nightcaps and red noses, are skating away in ten pairs of breeches, looking, in point of shape, exactly like hogs set upon their hind legs. It's all very true the artist may have shown very great talent, but that only shows him to be the greater fool for wasting his talents upon such subjects.' His collection, therefore, consisted almost entirely of the Italian schools, with a few Flemish, a few English, and one or two exquisite Spanish pictures. He had two good Murillos and a Velasquez, one or two fine Van Dykes, and four sketches by Rubens of larger pictures. But he had numerous landscapes and several very beautiful small paintings of the Bolognese school, though that on which he prided himself the most was an exquisite Correggio. It was in this room that he left his niece Edith when he set out for Woodchurch, and as she sat with her arm fallen somewhat listlessly over the back of the low sofa, the light coming in from the window strong upon her left cheek, and the rest in shade, with her rich colouring and her fine features, the high-toned expression of soul upon her brow, and the wonderful grace of her whole form and attitude, she would have made a fine study for any of those dead artists whose works lived around her. She heard the wheels of the carriage roll away, but she gave no thought to the question of whither her uncle had gone, or why he took her not with him, as he usually did. She was glad of it, in fact, and people seldom reason upon that with which they are well pleased. Her whole mind was directed to her own situation, and to the feelings which the few words of conversation she had had with her sister had aroused. She thought of him she loved, with the intense, eager longing to behold him once more, but once, if so it must be, which perhaps only a woman's heart can fully know. To be near him, to hear him speak, to trace the features she had loved, to mark the traces of time's hand, and the lines that care and anxiety and disappointment and regret she knew must be busily working. Oh, what a boon it would be! Then her mind ran on, led by the light hand of hope, along the narrow bridge of association to ask herself, if it would be such delight to see him, and to hear him speak, what would it be to soothe, to comfort, to give him back to joy and peace? 
The dream was too bright to last, and it soon faded. He was near her, and yet he did not come. He was in the same land, in the same district. He had gazed up to the house where she dwelt. If he had asked whose it was, the familiar name, the name once so dear, must have sounded in his ear, and yet he did not come. A few minutes of time, a few steps of his horse, would have brought him to where she was, but he had turned away, and Edith's eyes filled with tears. She rose and wiped them off, saying, "'I will think of something else,' and she went up and gazed at a picture. It was a Salvatore Rosa, a fine painting, though not by one of the finest masters. There was a rocky scene in front, with trees waving in the wind of a fierce storm, while two travellers stood beneath a bank, and a writhing beech-tree scarcely seemed to find shelter, even there from the large grey streams of rain that swept across the foreground. But withal, in the distance, were seen some majestic old towers and columns, with a gleam of golden light upon the edge of the sky, and hope, never wearying of her kindly offices, whispered to Edith's heart. In life, as in that picture, there may be sunshine behind the storm. Poor Edith was right willing to listen, and she gave herself up to the gentle guide. Perhaps, she thought, his duty might not admit of his coming, or perhaps he might not know how he would be received. My father's anger would be sure to follow such a step. He might think that insult, injury, would be added. He might imagine, even, that I am changed. And she shook her head sadly. Yet why should he not, she continued, if I sit here and think so of him? Who can tell what people may have said? Who can tell even what falsehoods may have been spread? Perhaps he's even now thinking of me. Perhaps he has come into this part of the country to make inquiries, to see with his own eyes, to satisfy himself. Oh, it must be so. It must be so, she cried, giving herself up again to the bright dream. Aye, and this Sir Edward Digby, too. He is his dear friend, his companion. May he not have sent him down to investigate and judge? I thought it strange at the time that this young officer should write to inquire after my father's family, and then instantly accept an invitation, and I marked how he gazed at that wretched young man and his unworthy father. Perhaps he will tell Zara more, and I shall hear when I return. Perhaps he has told her more already. Indeed, it is very probable, for they had a long ride together yesterday and poor Edith began to feel as anxious to go back to her father's house as she had been glad to quit it. Yet she saw no way how this could be accomplished before the period allotted for her stay was at an end, and she determined to have recourse to a little simple art, and asked Mr. Croyland to take her over to Harborne on the following morning, with the ostensible purpose of looking for some articles of apparel left behind, but in truth to obtain a few minutes' conversation with her sister. There are times in the life of almost every one, at least of every one of feeling and intellect, when it seems as if we could meditate for ever, when, without motion or change, the spirit within the earthly tabernacle could pause and ponder over deep subjects of contemplation for hour after hour, with the doors and windows of the senses shut, and without any communication with external things. The matter before us may be any of the strange and perplexing relations of man's mysterious being, or it may be some obscure circumstance of our own fate, some period of uncertainty and expectation, some of those Egyptian darknesses which from time to time come over the future, and which we gaze on half in terror, half in hope, discovering nothing yet speculating still. 
The latter was the case at that moment with Edith Croyland, and as she revolved every separate point of her situation, it seemed as if fresh wells of thought sprang up to flow on interminably. She had continued thus during more than half an hour after her uncle's departure, when she heard a horse stop before the door of the house, and her heart beat, though she knew not wherefore. Her lover might have come at length indeed, but if that dream crossed her mind it was soon swept away, for the next instant she heard her father's voice, first inquiring for herself and then asking in a lower tone if his brother was within. If Edith had felt hope before, she now felt apprehension, for during several years no private conversation had taken place between her father and herself without bringing with it grief and anxiety, harsh words spoken, and answers painful for a child to give. It seldom happens that fear does not go beyond reality, but such was not the case in the present instance, for Edith Croyland had to undergo far more than she expected. Her father entered the room where she sat with a slow step and a stern and determined look. His face was very pale, too. His lips themselves seemed bloodless, and the terrible emotions which were in his heart showed themselves upon his countenance by many an intelligible but indescribable sign. As soon as Edith saw him, she thought, he has heard of Henry's return to this country. It is that which was brought him. And she nerved her heart for a new struggle. But still she could scarcely prevent her limbs from shaking as she rose and advanced to meet her parent. Sir Robert Croyland drew her to him and kissed her tenderly enough, for in truth he loved her very dearly, and then he led her back to the sofa and seated himself beside her. "'How low these abominable contrivances are,' he said. "'I do wish that Zachary would have some sofas that people can sit upon with comfort, "'instead of these beastly things only fit for a Turkish harem or a dog-kennel.' "'Edith made no reply, for she waited in dread of what was to follow "'and could not speak of trifles. "'But her father presently went on, saying, "'So, my brother is out, and not likely to return for an hour or two. "'Well, I am glad of it, Edith.' "'for I came over to speak with you on matters of much moment.' "'Still Edith was silent, for she durst not trust her voice with any reply. "'She feared that her courage would give way at the first words, "'and that she should burst into tears, "'when she felt sure that all the resolution she could command "'would be required to bear her safely through. "'She trusted indeed that, as she had often found before, "'her spirit would rise with the occasion, "'and that she should find powers of resistance within her "'in the time of need.' though she shrank from the contemplation of what was to come. "'I have delayed long, Edith,' continued Sir Robert Croyland after a pause, "'to press you upon a subject in regard to which it is now absolutely necessary you should come to a decision. Too long, indeed, but I have been actuated by a regard for your feelings, and you owe me something for my forbearance. There can now, however, be no further delay. You will easily understand that I mean your marriage with Richard Radford.' Edith raised her eyes to her father's face, and after a strong effort replied, "'My decision, my dear father, has, as you know, been long made. I cannot, and I will not, marry him. Nothing on earth shall ever induce me.' "'Do not say that, Edith,' answered Sir Robert Croyland, with a bitter smile, "'for I could utter words which, if I know you rightly, would make you glad and eager to give him your hand, even though you broke your heart in so doing.' but before I speak those things, which will plant a wound in your bosom for life, that nothing can heal or assuage, I will try every other means. I request you, I entreat you, I command you to marry him. By every duty that you owe me, 
by all the affection that a child ought to feel for a father, I beseech you to do so, if you would save me from destruction and despair. I cannot, I cannot, said Edith, clasping her hands. Oh, why should you drive me to such painful disobedience? In the first place, can I promise to love a man that I hate, to honour and obey one whom I despise, and whose commands can never be for good? But still more, my father, you must hear me out, for you force me to speak. You force me to tear open old wounds, to go back to times long past, and to recur to things bitter to you and to me. I cannot marry him, as I told you once before, for I hold myself to be the wife of another. Folly and nonsense, cried Sir Robert Croyland angrily. You are neither his wife, nor he your husband. What, a wife of a man who has never sought you for years, who has cast you off, abandoned you, made no inquiry of you? The marriage was a farce. You read a ceremony which you had no right to read. You took vows which you had no power to take. The law of the land pronounces all such engagements mere pieces of empty foolery. But the law of God, replied Edith, tells us to keep vows that we have once made. To those vows I called God to witness with a true and sincere heart, and with the same heart and the same feelings I will keep them. I did wrong, my father, I know I did wrong, and Henry did wrong too, but by what we have done we must abide, and I dare not, I cannot be the wife of another. But I tell you, you shall, exclaimed her father vehemently. I will compel you to do so. I will overrule this obstinate folly and make you obedient whether you choose it or not. Nay, nay, not so, cried Edith. You could not do, you would not attempt so cruel a thing. I will, so heaven help me, exclaimed Sir Robert Croyland. Then, thank heaven, answered his daughter in a low but stern voice, it is impossible. In this country there is no clergyman who would perform the ceremony contrary to my express dissent. If I break the vows that I have taken, it must be my own voluntary act, for there is not any force that can compel me to do so, and I call heaven to witness that, even if you were to drag me to the altar, I would say no to the last. Rash, mad, unfeeling girl, cried her father, starting up, and gazing upon her with a look in which rage and disappointment and perplexity were all mingled. He stood before her for a moment in silence, and then strode vehemently backwards and forwards in the room, with his right hand contracting and expanding as if grasping at something. "'It must be done,' he said at length, pressing his hand upon his brow. "'It must be done.' And then he recommenced his silent walk, with the shadows of many emotions coming over his countenance. When he returned to Edith's side again, the manner and the aspect of Sir Robert Croyland were both changed. There was an expression of deep sorrow upon his countenance, of much agitation, but considerable tenderness, and to his daughter's surprise he took her hand in his and pressed it affectionately. "'Edith,' he said after a short interval of silence, "'I have commanded, I have insisted, I have threatened, but all in vain.' Yet in so doing I have had in view to spare you even greater pain than could be occasioned by a father's sternness. My very love for you, my child, made me seem wanting in love, but now I must inflict the greater pain. You require, it seems, inducements stronger than obedience to a father's earnest commands, and you shall have them, however terrible for me to speak and you to hear. I will tell you all and leave you to judge. Edith gazed at him in surprise and terror. "'Oh, do not, do not, sir,' she said. "'Do not try to break my heart and put my duty to you "'in opposition to the fulfilment of a most sacred vow, 
in opposition to all the dictates of my own heart and my own conscience? Edith, it must be done, replied Sir Robert Croyland. I have urged you to a marriage with young Richard Radford. I now tell you solemnly that your father's life depends upon it. Edith clasped her hands wildly together and gazed for a moment in his face without a word, almost stupefied with horror. But Sir Robert Croyland had deceived her, or attempted to deceive her, on the very same subject they were now discussing, more than once already. She knew it, and of course she doubted, for those who have been once false are never fully believed. Those who have been once deceived are always suspicious of those who have deceived them, even when they speak the truth. As thought and reflection came back after the first shock, Edith found much more cause to doubt. She could not see how such a thing was possible, how her refusal of Richard Radford could affect her father's life, and she replied, after a time, in a hesitating tone, "'How can that be? I do not understand it. I do not see how.' "'I will tell you,' replied Sir Robert Croyland, in a low and peculiarly quiet voice, which had something fearful in it to his daughter's ear. "'It is a long story, Edith, but you must hear it all, my child.' "'You shall be your father's confidant, his only one. "'You shall share the secret, dreadful as it is, "'which has embittered his whole existence, "'rendered his days terrible, his nights sleepless, "'his bed a couch of fire.' "'Edith trembled in every limb, "'and Sir Robert, rising, "'crossed over and opened the door of the drawing-room "'to see that there were none of the servants near it. "'Then closing it again, he returned to her side "'and proceeded, holding her hand in his.' "'You must have remarked,' he said, "'and perhaps often wondered, my dear child, "'that Mr. Radford, a man greatly below myself in station, "'whose manners are repulsive and disagreeable, "'whose practices I condemn and reprobate, "'whose notions and principles I abhor, "'has exercised over me for many years "'an influence which no other person possesses, "'that he has induced me to do many things "'which my better sense and better feelings disapprove.' that he has even led me to consent that my best-loved daughter should become the wife of his son, and to urge her to be so at the expense of all her feelings. You have seen all this, Edith, and wondered. Is it not so? I have indeed, murmured Edith. I have been by no means able to account for it. Such will not be the case much longer, Edith, replied Sir Robert Croyland. I am making my confession, my dear child, and you shall hear all. I must recur, too, to the story of young Leighton. You know well that I liked and esteemed him, and although I was offended, just as I might be, at his conduct towards you, and thought fit to show you that I disapprove, yet at first, and from the first, I determined, if I saw the attachment continue, and prove real and sincere, to sacrifice all feelings of pride and all considerations of fortune, and when you were of a fit age, to confirm the idle ceremony which had passed between you by a real and lawful marriage.' "'Oh, that was kind and generous of you, my dear father. "'What could make you change so suddenly and fatally? "'You must have seen that the attachment was true and lasting. "'You must have known that Henry was in every way "'calculated to make your daughter happy.' "'You shall hear, Edith, you shall hear,' replied her father. "'Very shortly after the event of which I have spoken, "'another occurred of a dark and terrible character, "'only known to myself and one other.' I was somewhat irritable at that time. My views and prospects with regard to yourself were crossed, and although I had taken the resolution I have mentioned, vexation and disappointment had their effect upon my mind. Always passionate, I gave way more to my passion than I had ever done before, and the result was a fatal and terrible one. 
You may remember poor Claire, the gamekeeper. He had offended me on the Monday morning, and I had used violent and angry language towards him before his companions, threatening to punish him in a way he did not expect. On the following day we went out to shoot, he and I alone together, and on our way back we passed through a little wood which lies— Oh, stop! Stop! cried Edith, covering her eyes with her hands. Do not tell me any more. Her father was not displeased to see her emotion, for it answered his purpose. Yet it must not be supposed that the peculiar tone and manner which he assumed, so different from anything that had been seen in his demeanour for years, was affected as a means to an end. Such was not the case. Sir Robert Croyland was now true, in manner and in words, though it was the first time that he had been entirely so for many years. There had been a terrible struggle before he could make up his mind to speak, but yet, when he did begin, it was a relief to him to unburthen the overloaded breast, even to his own child. It softened him, it made his heart expand, it took the chain off long-imprisoned feelings, and gave a better spirit room to make its presence felt. He did not forget his object, indeed, to save himself from a death of horror, from accusation, from disgrace, was still his end but the means by which he proposed to seek it were gentler. He even wavered in his resolution. He fancied that he could summon fortitude to leave the decision to Edith herself, and that if that decision were against him, would dare and bear the worst. But still he was pleased to see her moved, for he thought that she could never hear the whole tale and learn his situation fully without rushing forward to extricate him, and he went on, Nay, Edith, now the statement has begun, it must be concluded, he said. You would hear, and you must hear, all. You know the wood I speak of, I dare say, a little to the left of Checker Tree. Oh, yes, murmured Edith, where poor Clare was found. The baronet nodded his head. It was there indeed, he said. We went down to see if there were any snipes or wild fowl in the bottom. It is a deep and gloomy-looking dell, with a pond of water and some rushes in the hollow, with a little brook running through it, having tall trees all around, and no road but one narrow path crossing it. As we came down, I thought I saw the form of a man move amongst the trees, and I fancied that someone was poaching there. I told Clare to go round the pond and see, while I watched the road. He did not seem inclined to go, saying that he had not remarked anybody, but that the people round about said the place was haunted. I had been angry with him the whole morning, and a good deal out of humour with many things, so I told him to go round instantly and not make me any answer. The man did so, in a somewhat slow and sullen humour, I thought, and returned sooner than I fancied he ought to, saying that he could see no trace of any one. I was now very angry, for I fancied he neglected his duty. I told him that he was a liar, that I had perceived someone, whom he might have perceived as well, and that my firm belief was he was in alliance with the poachers and deserved to be immediately discharged. Well, Sir Robert, he said, in regard to discharging me, that is soon settled. I will not stay another day in your service after I have a legal right to go. As to being a liar, I am none, and as to being in league with the poachers, if you say so, you yourself lie. Such were his words, or words to that effect, I got furious at his insolence, though perhaps, Edith, perhaps I provoked it myself. At least I have thought so since. However, madly giving way to rage, I took my gun by the barrel to knock him down. A struggle ensued, for he caught hold of the weapon in my hand, 
and how I know not, but the gun went off, and Claire fell back upon the turf. What would I not have done then to recall every hasty word I had spoken? But it was in vain. I stooped over him. I spoke to him. I told him how sorry I was for what had happened. But he made no answer, and pressed his hand upon his right side, where the charge had entered. I was mad with despair and remorse. I knew not where to go or what to do. The man was evidently dying, for his face had grown pale and sharp, and after trying to make him speak and beseeching him to answer one word, I set off running as fast as I could towards the nearest village for assistance. As I was going, I saw a man on horseback, riding sharply down towards the very place. He was at some distance from me, but I easily recognised Mr. Radford, and knew that he must pass by the spot where the wounded man lay. I comforted myself with thinking that Claire would get aid without my committing myself, and I crept in amongst the trees at the edge of the wood to make sure that Mr. Radford saw him, and to watch their proceedings. Quietly and stealthily finding my way through the bushes, I came near, and then I saw that Radford was kneeling by Claire's side with an inkhorn in his hand, which, with his old tradesman-like habits, he used always at that time to carry about him. He was writing busily, and I could hear Claire speak, but could not distinguish what he said. The state of my mind at that moment I cannot describe. It was more like madness than anything else. Vain and foolish is it, for any man or any body of men to argue what would be their conduct in trying situations which they have never been placed in. It is worse than folly for them to say what would naturally be another man's conduct in any circumstances, for no man can tell another's character or understand fully all the fine shades of feeling or emotion that may influence him. The tale I am telling you now, Edith, is true, too true, in all respects. I was very wrong, certainly, but I was not guilty of the man's murder. I never intended to fire, I never tried to fire, and yet perhaps I acted afterwards as if I had been guilty, or at all events in a way that was well calculated to make people believe I was so. But I was mad at the time, mad with agitation and grief, and every man, I believe, in moments of deep emotion is mad, more or less. However, I crept out of the wood again and hastened on, determined to leave the man to the care of Mr. Radford, but with all my thoughts wild and confused and no definite line of conduct laid out for myself. Before I had gone a mile, I began to think what a folly I had committed, that I should have joined Radford at once, that I should have been present to hear what the man said, and to give every assistance in my power, although it might be ineffectual, in order to staunch the blood and save his life. As soon as these reflections arose, I determined, though late, to do what I should have done at first, and turning my steps, I walked back at a quick pace. Ere I got halfway to the top of the hill which looks down upon the wood, I saw Radford coming out again on horseback, but I went on and met him. As soon as he beheld me, he checked his horse, which was going at a rapid rate, and when I came near, dismounted to speak with me. We were then little more than common acquaintances, and I had sometimes dealt hardly with him in his different transactions. But he spoke in a friendly tone, saying, "'This is a sad business, Sir Robert. "'But if you will take my advice, you will go home as quickly as you can, "'and say nothing to anyone till you see me. "'I will be with you in an hour or so. "'At present I must ride up to middle quarter "'and get down men to carry home the body.' "'With a feeling I cannot express, I asked, "'if he were dead then. "'He nodded his head significantly, "'and when I was going to put further questions, "'he grasped my hand, saying, "'Go home, Sir Robert, go home.' 
I shall say nothing about the matter to anyone till I see you, except that I found him dying in the wood. His gun was discharged, he continued, so there is no proof that he did not do it himself. Little did I know what a fiend he was, into whose power I was putting myself. Oh, heaven, cried Edith, who had been listening with her head bent down, till her whole face was nearly concealed. I see it all now, I see it all. No, dear child, replied Sir Robert Croyland, in a voice sad and solemn, but wonderfully calm. You cannot see it all. No, nor one thousandth part of what I have suffered. Even the next dreadful three hours, for he was fully that ere he came to Harborne, were full of horror, inconceivable to any one but to him who endured them. At length he made his appearance, calm, grave, self-possessed, with naught of his somewhat rude and blustering manner, and announced with an affectation of feeling to the family that poor Clare, my keeper, had been found dying with a wound in his side. "'I recollect the day well,' said Edith, shuddering. "'Do you not remember, then,' said Sir Robert Croyland, "'that he and I went into my writing-room, "'that awful room which well deserves the old prison name of the room of torture. "'We were closeted there for nearly two hours, "'and all he said I cannot repeat. "'His tone, however, was the most friendly in the world. "'He professed the greatest interest in me and in my situation, "'and he told me that he had come to see me before he said a word to anyone.' "'because he wished to take my opinion as to how he was to proceed. "'It was necessary,' he said, "'that I should know the facts, "'for, unfortunately, they placed me in a very dangerous situation, "'which he was most anxious to free me from. "'And then he went on to tell me that when he had come up, "'Poor Clare was perfectly sensible, "'and had his speech distinctly. "'As a magistrate,' he continued, "'I thought it right immediately to take his dying deposition, "'for I saw that he had not many minutes to live.' "'Here it is,' he said, showing me his pocket-book, "'and, as I luckily always have a pen and ink with me, "'I knelt down and wrote his words from his own lips. "'He had strength enough to sign the paper, "'and, as you may see, there is the mark of blood from his own hand, "'which he had been pressing on his side. "'I would fain have taken the paper, but he would not let me, "'saying that he was bound to keep it, "'and then he went on and read the contents.' In it, the unfortunate man charged me most wrongfully with having shot him in a fit of passion, and, moreover, he said that he had been sure beforehand that I would do it, as I had threatened him on the preceding day, and there were plenty of people who could prove it. "'Oh, how dreadful!' cried Edith. "'It was false, as I have a soul to be saved,' cried Sir Robert Croyland, but Mr. Radford then went on, and shrugging his shoulders, said that he was placed in a very delicate and painful situation— and that he did not really know how to act with regard to the deposition. "'Put it in the fire!' I exclaimed. "'Put it in the fire!' But he said, "'No, every man must consider himself in these things, Sir Robert. I have my own character and reputation to think of, my own duty. I risk a great deal, you must recollect, by concealing a thing of this kind. I do not know that I don't put my own life in danger, for this is clear and conclusive evidence against you, and you know—' what it is to be accessory in a case of murder. I then told him my own story, Edith, and he said that made some difference indeed. He was sure I would tell him the truth, but yet he must consider himself in the matter, and he added hints which I could not mistake that his evidence was to be bought off. I offered anything he pleased to name, and the result was such as you may guess. He exacted that I should mortgage my estate as far as it could be mortgaged, 
and make over the proceeds to him, and that I should promise to give your hand to his son. I promised anything, my child, for not only life and death, but honour or disgrace, were in the balance. If he had asked my life, I would have held my throat to the knife a thousand times sooner than have made such sacrifices. But to die the death of a felon, Edith, to be hanged, to writhe in the face of a grinning and execrating multitude, to have my name handed down in the annals of crime as the man who had been executed for the murder of his own servant, I could not bear that, my child, and I promised anything. He kept the paper, he said, as a security, and at first it was to be given with me, to do as I liked, when the money coming from the mortgage was secretly made over to him. But then he said that he had lost one great hold and must keep it till the marriage was completed. For by this time the coroner's inquest was over, and he had withheld the deposition, merely testifying that he had found the man at the point of death in the wood, and had gone as fast as possible for assistance. The jury consisted of his tenants and mine, and they were easily satisfied, but the fiend who had me in his power was more greedy, and by the very exercise of his influence he seemed to learn to enjoy it. Day after day, month after month, he took a pleasure in making me do things that were abhorrent to me. It changed my nature and my character. He forced me to wink at frauds that I detested, and every year he pressed for the completion of your marriage with his son. Your coldness, your dislike, your refusal would, long ere this, have driven him into fury, I believe, if Richard Radford had been eager for your hand himself. But now, Edith, now, my child, he will hear of no more delay. He is ruined in fortune, disappointed in his expectations, and rendered fierce as a hungry beast by some events that have taken place this morning. He has just now been over at Harborne, and used threats which I know too well he will execute. He it was himself who told me to inform you that if you did not consent, your father's life would be the sacrifice. "'Oh, heaven!' cried Edith, covering her eyes with her hands. "'At least give me time to think.' Surely his work cannot have such power, a base notorious criminal himself, one who every day violates the law, who scoffs at his own oaths, and holds truth and honour but as names. Surely his word would be nothing against Sir Robert Croyland's. His word is nothing, would be nothing, replied her father earnestly. But that deposition, Edith, it is that which is my destruction. Remember that the words of a dying man, with eternity and judgment close before his eyes, are held by the law more powerful than any other kind of evidence. And besides, there are those still living who heard the rash threat I used. Suspicion once pointed at me, a thousand corroborative circumstances would come forth to prove that the tale I told of parting with the dead man some time before was false, and that very fact would condemn me. Cast away all such hopes, Edith, cast away all such expectations. They are vain, vain. Look the truth full in the face, my child. This man has your father's life entirely and totally in his power. And ask yourself if you will do me to death. Oh, give me time, give me time, cried Edith, wringing her hands. Let me but think over it till tomorrow or the next day. Not an hour ago, replied Sir Robert Croyland. He swore by everything he holds sacred that if before twelve tonight he did not receive your consent. Stay, stay cried Edith eagerly, placing her hand upon her brow. Let me think, let me think. It is but money that he wants. It is but the pitiful wealth my uncle left me. Let him take it, my father, she continued, laying her hand upon Sir Robert's arm, 
and gazing brightly in his face, as if the light of hope had suddenly been renewed. Let him take it all, every farthing. I would sooner work as a hired servant in the fields for my daily bread, with the only comfort of innocence and peace, than break my vows and marry that bad man. I will sign a promise this instant that he shall have all. Sir Robert Croyland threw his arms around her, and looked up to heaven as if imploring succour for them both. "'My sweet child, my sweet child,' he said, with the tears streaming down his cheeks. "'But I cannot leave you even this generous hope. This man has other designs. I offered, I promised, to give Zara to his son, and to ensure to her, with my brother's help, a fortune equal to your own. But he would not hear of it. He has other views, my Edith. You must know all.' You must see all as it really is. He will keep his word this very night. If before twelve he do not receive your consent, the intimation of the fatal knowledge he possesses will be sent to those who will not fail to track it through every step, as the bloodhound follows his prey. He is a desperate man, Edith, and will keep his word, bringing down ruin upon our heads, even if it overwhelm himself also. Edith Croyland paused without reply for several minutes her beautiful face remaining pale, with the exception of one glowing spot in the centre of her cheek. Her eyes were fixed upon the ground, and her lips moved, but without speech. She was arguing in her own mind the case between hope and despair, and the terrible array of circumstances on every side bewildered her. Delay was her only refuge, and looking up in her father's face, she said, "'But why is he so hasty? Why cannot he wait a few hours longer?' I will fix a time when my answer shall be given. It shall be shortly, very shortly, this time to-morrow. Surely, surely, in so terrible a case I may be allowed a few hours to think. A short, a very short period to decide. He will admit of no more than I have said, answered Sir Robert Croyland. It is as vain to entreat him as to ask the hangman to delay his fatal work. He is hard as iron, without feeling, without heart. His reasons, too, are specious, my dear child. His son, it seems, has taken part this morning in a smuggling affray with the troops. Blood has been shed. Some of the soldiers have been killed. All who have had a share therein are guilty of felony, and it has become necessary that the young man should be hurried out of the country without delay. To him such a flight is nothing. He has no family to blacken with the record of crime. He has no honourable name to stain. His means are all prepared. His flight is easy. His escape secure but his father insists that you shall be his bride before he goes, or he gives your father up, not to justice, but to the law, which in pretending to administer justice, but too often commits the very crimes it seems to punish. Four short days are all that he allows, and then you are to be that youth's bride. What, the bride of a felon? cried Edith, her spirit rising for a moment, of one stained with every vice and every crime, to vow falsely that I will love him whom I must ever hate, to break all my promises to one I must ever love, to deceive, prove false and forsworn to the noble and the true, and give myself to the base, the lawless, and the abhorred? Oh, my father, my father, is it possible that you can ask such a thing? The fate of Sir Robert Croyland and his daughter hung in the balance. One harsh command, one unkind word, with justice and truth on her side, and feebleness and wrong on his, might have armed her to resist. But the old man's heart was melted. The struggle that he witnessed in his child was for a moment, remark only for a moment, 
more terrible than that within his own breast. There was something in the innocence and truth, something in the higher attributes of the passions called into action in her breast, something in the ennobling nature of the conflicting feelings of her heart, the filial tenderness, the adherence to her engagement, the abhorrence of the bad, the love of the good, the truth, the honour, and the piety, all striving one with the other, that for a time had made the mean passion of fear seem small and insignificant. "'I do not ask you, my child,' he said. "'I do not urge you. I ask, I urge you no more. "'The worst bitterness is past. "'I have told my own child the tale of my sorrows, "'my folly, my weakness, and my danger. "'I have inflicted the worst upon you, Edith, and on myself, "'and I leave it to your own heart to decide.' After your generous, your noble offer to sacrifice your property and leave yourself nothing for my sake, if it were cruel, it were, indeed, base to urge you farther. To avoid this dreadful disclosure, to shelter you and myself from such horrible details, I have often been stern and harsh and menacing. Forgive me, Edith, but it is past. You now know what is on the die, and it is your own hand casts it. Your father's life, the honour of your family— the high name we have ever borne, these are to be lost and won. But I urge it not, I ask it not. You only must and can decide. Edith, who had arisen, stood before him, pale as ashes, with her hands clasped so tight that the blood retreated from her fingers, where they pressed against each other, leaving them as white as those of the dead, her eyes fixed, straining but sightless upon the ground. All that she saw, all that she knew, all that she felt was the dreadful alternative of fates before her. It was more than her frame could bear. It was more than almost any heart could endure. To condemn a father to death, to bring the everlasting regret into her heart, to wander as if accursed over the earth, with a parent's blood crying out for vengeance. It was a terrible thought indeed. Then again she remembered the vows that she had taken— the impossibility of performing those that were asked of her, the sacrifice of the innocence to the guilty, the perjury that she must commit, the dark and dreadful future before her, the self-reproach that stood on either hand to follow her through life. She felt as if her heart was bursting, and in the next moment all the blood seemed to fly from it and leave it cold and motionless. She strove to speak, her voice was choked, but then again she made the effort and a few words broke forth convulsively. "'To save you, my father, I would do anything,' she cried. "'I will do anything, but—' She could not finish. Her sight failed her. Her heart seemed crushed. Her head swam. The colour left her lips, and she fell prone at her father's feet, without one effort to save herself. Sir Robert Croyland's first proceeding was to raise her and lay her on the sofa, but before he called anyone he gazed at her a moment or two in silence— she has fainted he said poor girl but then came another thought she said she would do anything he murmured her words were i will it is surely a consent he forgot he heeded not he would not heed that she added but yes it was a consent he repeated it must have been a consent i will hasten to tell him if we can but gain a few days it is something who can say what a few days may bring at all events, it is a relief. It will obtain the delay she wished. I will tell him. It must have been a consent. And calling the servants and Edith's own maid to attend upon her, he hastened out of the house, 
fearful of waiting till her senses returned, lest other words should snatch from him the interpretation he chose to put upon those which had gone before. In an instant, however, he returned, went into the library, and wrote down on a scrap of paper, "'Thanks, dearest Edith, thanks. I go in haste to tell Mr. Radford the promise you have given.' Then, hurrying out again, he put the paper which he had folded up into the hands of the groom, who held his horse. "'That for Miss Croyland,' he said, "'when she has quite recovered.' but not before, and mounting with speed he rode away as fast as he could go. End of chapter 12 End of volume 2